Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guests this week are Rosa Laborde and Anna Hartwick, actors, writers, and longtime friends who've created a new web series, Nesting, in which they play versions of themselves whose life plan involves getting pregnant at the same time so they can raise their kids together as housemates and co-parents, only to find their expectations challenged at every turn. Directed by Alana Harkin, who knows her way around friendship comedies if you've heard her episode of Semcast, it premieres on Crave in Canada this Friday, December 22nd, and you should check it out. Rosa and Anna picked Crossing Delancey, Joan Micklin Silver's 1988 dramedy starring Amy Irving as Izzy, a New York bookseller whose grandmother wants to set her up with a nice Jewish boy, a pickle seller named Sam. But Izzy would rather contemplate an affair with Anton, a Dutch novelist who's entirely alien to the Orthodox Jewish world in which she's been raised, and therefore, extremely tempting. With Peter Riegert and Jeroen Crebet as the contrasting love interests, and themes of longing, ambition, and frustration woven artfully throughout Susan Sandler's screenplay, Crossing Delancey is a little gem of a film that's been floating around in people's hearts for 35 years. Kind of like a pickle stuck to the side of the barrel. It's a clumsy metaphor, but this is someone else's movie. So Anna and I, um, we're, we're thinking about like what film we were going to choose to talk about. It's harder when there's two of us because you're kind of going, what's something that we both love or that we're both fascinated by? And and is it something that is in, in inspiring for us or where is it in, in the whole like museum catalog of everything we love. And we came to uh, several ideas. And then I was like, what about Crossing Delancey? Have you seen Crossing Delancey? And Anne went, oh my God, I love that movie. I love it so much. And it was something that we hadn't actually talked about. And Anna said, where, how did that even, like, why did you think of it? I was like, I, I remembered the, the feeling more the feeling of having first seen that film more than the actual content. And it was introduced to me to my, my father who always, it was either Moonstruck or Groundhog Day. And then one day he went, Oh, okay, you need to see this. And I, I remembered the feeling and the feeling was when life isn't what you think your life should be, might not actually be what you think your life should be. And, and I thought, that was so much of what Anna and I have always talked about in our friendship and in our art making um, as a theme for like what we were making together. So it felt like a really poignant and beautiful. And this director who, like you said, why don't we know more about her? It's shocking. Anyways, Anna. Rosa, that's, that's exactly it. Like we were texting back and forth and trying to figure out what movie and then when Crossing Delancey landed in my inbox, I was like, yes. Because <laughs> Rosa, I feel the exact same. It's a feeling. I don't, I, I rewatched it, of course. We both rewatched it and it it could not have been more perfect for the show. Um, but the thing is, is that my memory of it is a feeling. And probably similarly, Rosa, it was um, my parents that would have introduced it to me. Like we didn't have a TV growing up. We would rent um, a TV and a VCR sometimes on the weekend as a special treat, go to Blockbuster and pick up a video. And it was like the highlight of the month and crossing Delancey would have been one of them. And I, I really, I really felt that a deep connection to it emotionally, though I couldn't describe it in detail. And then every time I'm in New York, I'm often in the Lower East Side and I always think I'm crossing Delancey. Yeah. No, it has that kind of iconic feeling, like it kind of settles somewhere in your memory, your history, 
Um, Because it feels so like a perfect snapshot of this particular time in New York City. Yeah, it's almost, it's got this environmental sensibility where you just, you get the sense that you're watching the neighborhood evolve around the characters and everybody is weirdly fixed in a specific time and place. Like Amy Irving's character is modern, but she's drawn to someone, she's drawn simultaneously to an older man and then a man from an older world. A man her age from an older world, which I find fascinating as a, as a conflict because their one relationship is very clearly unhealthy. The other could be healthy if she allows it, but there's this snapshot of like, this is around Working Girl and Moonstruck and all these moments where the, the nature of the romantic comedy started to turn as well into something a little more, um, something where the, where the female leads had a little more agency if things just don't happen to them. They have to make decisions throughout the entire narrative to, to drive the story. And what Joan Micklin Silver did was not push any of it. Like it's all there for us to see and appreciate the same way you have the collision of the old world with the, the, the original generation of Jewish immigrants or second generation immigrants who are pushing towards a traditional way of life that's gone, uh, that they're the only ones left maintaining and this, the conflicts, all the conflicts that it sets up are in no way romantic comedy conflicts, but they serve yeah. the romance, which is which was great. I mean, I went to see it at the time. I saw it when I was, I guess I would have been 19 in the spring of 88, whenever it opened. I saw it at the Eglinton in a great big screen in a largely Jewish area. There was a delicatessen right next door wow. uh, of Toronto. And um, my grandparents are, you know, Izzy's parents' age. Yeah. And they really wanted to know what I thought about it. And they hadn't seen it. They just knew that it was a movie about Jewish people from the old world opening. And it's just one of those weird things where I didn't recognize anything, but I knew everything. Yeah. And it was my introduction to Joan Micklin Silver, who I then couldn't see the rest of her movies for another 10 years or so until they surfaced again, because they were already hard to find. Yeah. I mean, and it was also, I mean, the poignancy of looking at a film around Jewish characters where the, the it's not about being Jewish, though. It's just about Jewish people living their lives. And I, I found that, especially now, it's like so poignant to just look at uh, what it is to be from somewhere and also wish to be somewhere else. And I, and I find that Amy Irving's character, Izzy's character, is not entirely likable, right? And really flawed in some kind of delicious ways. Like I, she makes these terrible mistakes and sort of again and again, that are totally about what she, how she's seeing things. Um, and she lies when she's like, I'm seeing, I love that moment in the bathroom where she says, I'm seeing someone. And just the thing of uh, having to pretend, having to pretend to be from somewhere else and a kind of escape from I live uptown. I don't live in the Lower East Side. I'm trying to let that go. And I found that it was so beautifully captured. Also that New York to me, I don't know if you saw this and I'm watching it. I'm like, these must be real people. These aren't extras, like everything, even if it felt so alive and real. Um, Details of New York, the handball, so I watched it with I watched it with my husband who's Jewish and he was loving every detail of it, just like eating up all the different things. And, you know, handball in New York is an iconic game. Like you still see people play it. And the the Manischewitz wine advertisement over the store, and it's like wine so thick you can cut it. Yeah. 
And then the grandma, like, I just loved her so much. And I looked her up and she's a, she's a theater actress from Poland and, you know, iconic Yiddish theater actress and, and has a huge career with her husband in New York and then lands in this movie. And she just, she brought all the comedy for me. I, I adored her. Again, it's the environment, right? Like it's most of it, I think really was there. There, there wasn't a lot of redressing done. I th I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, the apartments are sets, but all the locations are otherwise real. So there wasn't the time to build a pickle shop. They just put some pickles in front of an existing store and made it the pickle shop. But it's all part of a community that was fully entrenched and is by the, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to frame this so it doesn't sound horrible, but by at the beginning of the movie, we understand why Izzy doesn't want to be there, why she wants to flee. And by the end, we understand why she needs to stay like, emotionally. Yeah. Because we get to be introduced to the caricature of it, the stereotypes of it. Um, I don't know if it's because like the Roche's song is so completely mismatched to the to the world it's that we so see. It's so funny, isn't it? I know. Yeah. It's, it's the one thing we're like, oh, that's an interesting expression of feeling. Um, yeah, I, I know. It's curious. And I actually went back when we were talking about it and like reading reviews uh, from the time which were totally mixed like there you know it was like a lovely yeah. rom-com but also like what's it saying and you know and now she's this is a movie about settling and I'm like is I don't I don't know that it is but I find it so interesting that that's the response I find that often there are interesting responses to female directors making rom-coms as, as like just historically, you know, I go back in films that were oddly reviewed and I go, that was a good film. It was just the wrong reviewer, I think maybe, mm. or, you know. Oh, you should see the feedback to um, Catherine Bigelow's Blue Steel from 89, uh, which was absolutely pilloried by predominantly male critics who didn't understand that she was already making a movie that kind of questions all the testosterone copaganda assumptions of action films. I, we just screened yeah. it a couple of months ago and it, it, going through the reviews, looking for a quote was like, oh my God, these are horrifying. People just don't understand. And now you look back and it's practically a present day film. Crossing Delancey is sort of the same thing too, in that it's about, it's not about settling, but it's about understanding that you end up where you end up. Yeah. Uh, emotionally and literally. And, and it's what you want, embracing what you actually might want or owning it. Yeah, go ahead. So what you think you want. And I think that's been a theme yeah. of friendship is like constantly, you know, searching and striving and going for the shiny thing instead of actually realizing what's going to make you happy on the inside and what's what you actually need. And that was her growth. Like that was her maturity and her arc through the movie. And I think it's a very realistic and very like contemporary question for people as they're trying to mature and find a life partner. And I don't know, Rosa, I felt like it was, it could have been now that whole movie. It, totally. It also makes me wonder, and just in terms of the, the arc of feminism at that time, being an independent woman and what that means and the kind of man that means you're supposed to be with. And that idea of marriage isn't, it's like you want the exciting author and this, the ego driven kind of success, outward success. And then you watch this character, then every time she saw a baby and they had babies come through in the most artful way, this amazing moment, you know, where um, 
Izzy and him are opening the door to her apartment and a parade of a crocodile of pregnant woman walks between them. And you're like, okay, I know what you're trying to say. Like you've really said it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The the whole thing, the promise of what do you want? And for her, and this is just what her want was. I think ultimately she did want family. She was understanding that that was something that she did want, which it's okay to want. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly she's shown over and over again that, or rather we're shown over and over again that the family around Izzy is the thing that protects her as much as she might resent it, right? I mean, it's it's oldest child syndrome, I suppose, where you just don't want to do the things your parents did on sight, right? And so yeah. the, the, the subtext, of course, of, of her dating Anton and Jeroen Crabbe's character is that he's Gentile, he's not Jewish, and therefore he yeah. offers a complete break uh, from her world. But at the same time, we're way ahead of her on the fact that he just does not care about her. And so I, I, every time I watch the movie, and I've only seen it, I think three times all the way through, but over the years, but every time I look at it, I'm trying to figure out if it's a specific, like if it's a metaphor, if it's just specific to this one dick, like this one guy who doesn't care because he's he's the the romantic obstacle and that's all he needs to be. Corbet gives it so much space as an actor because he's so big and, and having so much fun. And like he'll be in The Fugitive five years later getting his face bashed in by Harrison Ford. Yeah. But here he's like, <laughs> I am the sexy man that they hired to distract you from the real problems of the world. Um, and in contrast to Riegert, who is very much like a, a new age old world guy, um, like with an unreconstructed accent and, and he works with his hands rather than his mind and all these things that, you know, that, that um, the, the concept of assimilation is supposed to work against, right? Like he's the embarrassing traditional guy. Yeah. Too is he. I'm not making these distinctions for myself, but, but the film definitely paints him as someone that she, since we're spending so much time in her perspective, he's someone she doesn't want to spend that much time with. So the movie sort of recoils from him. And I, I, like the way Riegert is framed in the distance for so many shots too, where he's just part of the yeah. environment rather than someone who's an individual person. It's so subtle and so smart on, on, on Silver's part. I wish I, oh man, I wish we talked about it. I just, I'd love to have yeah. known how it happened. I feel like, well, yeah. Well, it was a play, right? It was a play adaptation, but she, mm-hmm. I, I feel like he's, I feel like there's the metaphor in the Anton character. I, that's my sense because I feel like we're getting a reflection of like, what are the choices that you get to make? And I, this was a, a strange thing when I read in the reviews that someone thought that the, that Peter's character was um, underwritten or that it, there wasn't much there that just some tradesmen. And I felt Really? So the opposite. Yeah. I'm, you know, cause I'm so curious, what do people say about these things? Like, where is this landing? And for me, I, I find him to have a kind of confidence and there's something about the, tr- the tradesman where you think, oh, there's something lesser there in terms of thought. And yet he's so sharp. He's so bright. He's so watching. And she, it's actually pulling apart that the egocentric kind of look at someone through their lens, proselytizing to you versus someone actually looking at you and being present and seeing what's going on. And that becomes, I think, what starts to appeal to her, that that reality, which is then more about being present in what you actually want. So that's why so much of it does feel like a kind of metaphor. Um, But I also tend to see the world in metaphor. So... Mm -hmm my occupational hazard. 
thought Sam was absolutely fully drawn. You know, I, yeah. I, I think so attractive and so um, observant. I loved their scenes together. I loved how he connected with her Bobby, like that's her most important person in her life. And he's mm. there, you know, and, and the two of them sitting side by side with the, the lady who is the setup lady, the, 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 the oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love, Oh, there's, and then she starts inhaling all the food. I, 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 I think that, um, his ability to respond to her, um, ambivalence for what could be like, we don't know exactly the timeline of the movie, but we, it could be like six months to a year of this dance. And he's just there. He's just there and observing. And uh, that's steady. And that's what she realizes she needs at the end. Every time I watch it, I get a different take on Riegert because he is, he's such, he can be such a big, bright fixture in a movie, you know, smiling, chatty, moving around. And sometimes he's just quiet and observant. And here it's like, he's doing, what George Clooney would end up doing. He's not recessive, but he waits. And he takes, yeah. he just sort of takes the space up very quietly. He doesn't draw attention to himself. But yeah, as you said, he's always watching. He's completely aware of what's going on. And, and his, he makes no attempt to hide his attraction. He just can't express it. So he's kind of the still quiet admirer. It goes back to Gable, right? Like it's, it's, it's 1930s acting sort of. Which also connects the the character, which which makes Sam feel even more out of time, out of place, um, compared to Izzy and and the world that she inhabits or the world she's trying to inhabit. And it's not like it's not a film about social climbing exactly, because Anton doesn't offer that level of fame or connection or anything. I don't think to Izzy. He's just he's somebody different, and she's attracted to him because he's shiny. But then there's this humble guy with a pickle stall. I keep, I don't want to say pickle man too often because it starts to sound weird in your head. Like, it does yeah. sound weird. Don't say pickle man. Pickle man uh, sounds But weird. no, I call him the pickle guy, the pickles, Mr. Pickles. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's a cat. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Pickles. Uh, he, he definitely, he does have that Clark Gable. It's that really old timey, I'm here and I'm ready and I'm here and I'm ready. And what are you going to do with it? And and I think there's something about readiness too. It's the knowing, and maybe it's not a film about social climbing, but it's definitely a film about how one is, how you think you will be perceived because she is dealing with how people view her, especially when, and she has all these great moments where her friend, she says, did she tell you he sells pickles? And her friend goes, well, someone has to. And she's kind of like, why aren't other people like offended? Or when her friend, her, the other guy she's sometimes sleeping with says, your dad was, am- I love that guy. And she, it's like her perception was about how people would view her if she was with the pickle guy and how people would view her if she was with the famous author, which is when she lies about being with the famous author. So even though it's not social climbing, it does have that, you know, Wharton-esque kind of, who, who am I in New York society? How do I appear? Yeah. And the embarrassment um, that comes from having an old world job or an old world connection, right? Like she, she knows people. We just, on some level, we understand that she knows people who were the pickle man's wife, right? Mm-hmm. The pickle guy's wife. And they were in her mind, they're older and they're just, they're not cultured because they never had the opportunity to be, but she misses that part. She's just 
you can you can live with a pickle seller and read books. You can have an inner life. Um, you can do all of these things because that's what the world offers if you're willing. But she's got such tunnel vision that she just misses the larger picture. Yeah. And the other thing that occurred to me too was the um, the pickle man will have a much more stable future than an egomaniacal author who is probably like he'll get canceled in twenty years. He just doesn't know it yet. But um, but Sam will always be in work because yeah, someone has to sell pickles. Someone will always have to sell pickles. It's why I, I'm I'm annoyed now in my fifties that I never learned to trade. Honestly, I'm like, what would, what would anyone give for a pickle man? You know, like really. But it, it, that was a great moment. Uh, also, when Anton yells, "You're manipulating me." You right. know, I thought, wow, that's like, and that's where moments like that in the film that felt extremely modern. I mean. Uh, that I just thought it could be right now. Um, yeah, yeah, he will be canceled. And also he admits to his like late night anxiety attacks. No one needs that. Yeah. Oh. Oh. No. <laughs> I can help you. I can save you. I'll jump in there and, and make your life better and even edit all your stuff. But really what's offering her the most freedom is in fact, Sam. He's going to support her creative life in a way that this man is going to detract from her creative life. And it's that journey for her to find that. But, you know, you guys are talking about this 1930s sort of Clark Gable. What really struck me in the film, and I don't know if you noticed that, Rosa, is their voices, how they, she's, you know, Amy Irving at the time is theater royalty. Her parents are um, Broadway actors and she like grew up on the stage and her voice is like this beautiful American cinema voice from like decades prior to the movie, it feels like. And so, and his voice, Sam's voice is also like that. And maybe, maybe that, I think films still had that quality then, like actors still had a very sort of produced, beautiful voice. And now people are like, I'm mumbling, I'm being as real as possible. Like, like don't even imagine me as someone who's actually performing. Whereas they had this wonderful articulation that expressed their emotions on it. And I, I don't know how that struck you, Rosa. Like, did you, did that clue for you or did that like tweak for you? I, I, I don't know that I thought of it in those terms. I just was appreciating all of their performances. I mean, there was so much being in terms of performance, even when you just brought up the Shadkin, you, you know, the, the setup, the woman who's setting them up. I mean, the performance is, it's enormous, you know, like it's absolutely unabashed, completely, uh, wild and believable at the same time so I don't know I, I know there's that thing of like now we, we we're not really acting and you can't really see what I'm thinking and doing just like you know and I I guess for me when there's truth at the heart of it it doesn't either way I'm good either way so I feel that there's a kind of honesty like I wouldn't say that I was robbed of any of the beauty of their performances by these beautiful voices it was just something that I noted as so different stylistically as the, uh, compared to what we have now and compared to yeah. what we've seen from Mumblecore and beyond. I, 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 I actually loved it. I, I kind of wanted more of that beautiful sense of, and yet it was, it was not performative. It never felt like, Oh, can we talk about pace though? Sure. How different and relaxing it is to watch a movie from that era compared to now. Like even when at the first in the bookstore when she walks across the room so slowly gazing at him. I mean, that might've been a little much, but, but just the time that we get on her face 
this longing, these, this um, desire that you see on her face and just the pace throughout the whole movie I found so markedly different to what we're used to now. It's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about the 80s remixes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles' Mutant Mayhem and Weird, the Al Yankovic story, and the new 4K editions of Clue and the Warriors. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Blue Sky account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. Well, it's funny, uh, Hester Street, uh, Micklin Silver's first feature was a, a story of the distant past. It was about the, the Jewish ghetto and uh, New York. And it was adapted from, yeah, a, a book written in 1896. And, and it feels like something from the old world has just sort of crept onto the screen. And Crossing Delancey is the one where I think she's trying to be modern but she still has the rhythms of of someone telling older stories so she can't move quickly and that's the other weird contrast by using the roaches because those songs are so bouncy i was trying to figure out one of them is in the film as an actor so it can't be that the songs were just spackled in afterwards to to fix the pacing issues that a studio might have had with it it's clearly intentional but i think that contrast the fact that the the movie wants to move faster but the, the world they're set it in the world they've set it in is taking its time I think that's essential, right? Like you need those long, quiet scenes. It's like Bubby's not going anywhere quickly. She's 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 older. She's slower, and and Izzy sort of steps down from her world when she's with her to to match her gear. Like that when she's yeah. with when when she's in the Lower East Side, she's operating in second or third gear, but she wants to get into fourth. And when she's uptown, she can pretend that that's how she lives her life, but it's not who she is. And I, I kind of love the juxtaposition of the two, the, the paces, because it feels like there's this, I want to make this poppy. This is my studio movie. I mean, this was a big deal, right? Like there, and it wasn't going to get funded. And then it, it actually happened. And she's going, I'm trying to be this poppy romantic thing, but she cannot, she cannot help but be true to the roots of the story of what she's telling. And and that's what I love the cultural specificity of it, because sometimes I think, and especially as you, you move more into the rom-com, it's just sort of dissipating into a sort of hallmark world more and more and more. I, I feel like this kind of intense cultural specificity in a film that feels like it's still about something is what really grounds it and makes it really a delightful watch that's more impactful than just a oh, boy meets girl girl meets girl, whatever. And it's more, it's more universal being that specific. You know, when you get into that cultural specificity, you can then go, oh, you know, that's actually a little bit like my life wanting to leave this small town. Like I really wanted to leave my small town, get the hell out. That's all I wanted. And, and she wants to leave the Lower East Side. And so it's such a universal theme. Do we ever want to leave the Lower East Side? Like, I just feel like, I don't know. I, that was always my dream was to live in the Lower East Side. I think for me, because I'm I'm half Latina, half Jewish, it was just like, those are my people. Like, it's, it's literally my neighborhood. <laughs> it's the total mix. Yeah, I skew closer to Soho and Tribeca these days, but it's just because I know somebody with restaurants there. Although he's, yeah. he's got a place on the Bowery, so it all works out. 
Yeah, it works. Listen, any place in New York, usually, sometimes, mostly works out. Yeah. And, and yeah. treating the Lower East Side as, as its own borough, which it basically was in the 80s, less so now, I think everything's just sort of crossing over and gentrified in, in Manhattan to be one big thing. But the the sense that it is another country. Yeah. You know, isn't that, oh, was that Wharton? Who said the past is another country? I'm not remembering. And I know that I even just referenced Wharton, but yeah I, yeah, I think that's why it's going off in my brain too. So apologies to people listening, screaming the name in, in <laughs> but public. I, I keep bringing up Wharton. It does, you know, there are so many stories set in New York. You've got, you know, the, the Buccaneers right now on, on, on um, Apple TV, and then you've got the Gilded Age and there's, it's a, it's a place that is ripe for climbing, for, for desire, for, for something that you're not and to fit in on this other level. And that's what she's doing in this, in like, that's what Amy Irving's character is doing in the movie. But then what, you know, we learn and we don't always learn this in these wonderful TV shows, but we learn within the, the breadth of a movie that that actually is not what brings you happiness. No, it's, it's, I mean, it is, it's connection and community, but ultimately you have to be comfortable with yourself too, where you are. So Izzy's whole journey is really three blocks, right? She crosses Delancey. Um, I hate being so literal, but it is like, it's the title that slowly takes on a, a more welcoming, um, inviting texture as, as the film goes, because it's not like she is lowering herself to do any of these things. That's all in her own head. She just has to get past it. And there's yeah. a nice, there's a nice guy with a steady job and, nothing but admiration and, and and devotion waiting and there is something like it's an anti-assimilation narrative in a same in the same way that she'll be yeah. like she's got all the potential to be a modern person but still re remain true to her her ethnic identity which is not something that was being sold in the 80s it's still not right like they don't make movies about other than hallmark films where people go home find themselves and, and a fireman there there's no there's no narrative push for that in in american cinema because that's not what people want right america's a country built on reinvention and making some, something new of yourself and and for both this and hester street are ultimately about you know you are who you are and you always will be so you should find a way to be the most comfortable with the person you are although like that that doesn't the way I just framed it says that this is a death sentence, but that's not what that's not what her movies are about. I mean, Chilly Scenes of Winter, same thing. Like they're they're romantic comedies through the lens of accepting yourself in order to be happy, mm -hmm. and your situation can change. But if you hate yourself, and everything that you think you hate is simply the things that make you who you are, you can never be able to accept love or 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 even experience it properly. And and that's something that, you know, that, I think that gets more and more true and more and more practical with every, uh, with every generation and with every year. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I feel like it's, it's funny, like Instagram, you know, I'm just thinking of it right now, just in the world of social media and everything has become more and more about how we're perceived as we are trying to move away from how are we perceived and does it matter? And her films directly speaking to, accepting who you are being where you are and this this fight that we have as humans now between 
who we actually are, what we really in our gentle, most tender space inside desire for our lives, for ourselves versus what we imagine is expected of us. This kind of heroic, um, individualistic, uh, kind of lauded being as opposed to who who is me? Who is Izzy? Who is what feels right? Is it the person who's kind to my family? Is that actually, you know, and I and I think it is. It's truly a film about accepting where you are and who you are in not a settling way, which is like in, in not a like death sentence, like you were saying, yeah. but fully in uh it's love. It's an acceptance that is born of love, of going, no, because this feels good to be nurturing, to be nurtured, to be caring. Um, and in that, I think it's kind of revolutionary because it's beyond um, just you find him and he's the right part. You find your right match and that's great. It's about you find what it is to love and to be loved. And that's mm-hmm. very different because that's a verb. That's not it just happened to me. She has learned and st- she's not fully passive. I mean, things are happening, here, but she learns somehow what love is and how to love or how she wants to be loved also. That's so beautiful, Rosa. And it's so true. It's really at the core of um, the story. And I think that's what it left me with before I could even articulate it as, as a young person watching it. You know, it left me with this feeling and, and it's the opposite of settling. And I think what maybe, you know, she's fighting with it also is this idea of feminism. Like, I don't need a man. She has that speech to her, to her Bobby, she's like, I don't need a man. I don't need to settle. I'm fine. I have a beautiful apartment and I have a job. And she also has the best fashion. I would wear everything she wears. Balanced um, <laughs> trainers. She's just everything, that little basket bag. But her, you know, we're seeing stuff that's pretty revolutionary for the time. There's a single mother by choice. Yeah. Uh, gal who's like, you know, they're at the bris and she's like, yeah, she's doing it on her own. And there she is, like she's doing it on her own in downtown New York. I'm like, how is she doing that? Amazing. Kudos. And then, you know, this gal has her own apartment and she has her job and she feels that this is the way that I can be like, A, like you you said, Rosa, if it was nowadays, the, the author would be her perfect Instagram couple match. They'd be like an Instagram power couple. And Sam would not look so good on her feed, you know, like on that outer ego driven sort of artist vibe. But but her finding her true self um, also embraces a, another kind of feminism that actually allows her more freedom. She's going to have way, way more freedom as an artist and as, as a literary person with him in her life than trying to trail around this guy, like we already mentioned. Yeah, her memoir is going to be great. Yeah, because it's got everything. Yeah, it's a classic romantic uh, triangle setup, and and it's all about where you come from, where you're going, and everything else, and and the the sense as well that you end up where you need to be, and that's not settling. It means that like it's this whole multiverse thing, right? Like all the all the choices you've made have led you to this version of yourself. All the things you've done and not done have given you the trajectory to get where you are whenever people make that speech, it's always assumed that this is where you stop, but there's more coming. Like there's more stuff to do. There's more choices to make. There's more, there are more people to be. And the fact that Izzy settles, quote unquote settles 
by settling down with someone who genuinely loves her and will support whatever she does next, opens her world up, right? Like it gives her a future she wouldn't have had. Yeah. And it's true. True feminism, right? It's true. Like it's actually, she can be her full self as opposed to under something. Mm -hmm. Which weirdly brings me around to nesting because I told you I'd get us there. Um, But there is something in nesting that, that is about being your best self, um, whether you know you're doing it or not. And, and the thing that I really enjoyed about the show is that from episode to episode, we watch each of your characters push the other away from her worst impulses and towards something better. Although very rarely does it work right away. (laughs) No, it's, they're trying. Yeah. (laughs) They're trying, but I think it definitely was about the, the fun thing about keeping the character names, our names, was it allowed for a kind of making fun of ourselves and not all of it is true, but there are (laughs) aspects that are true to really lean into making fun of the, messes that we can be or have been and also embracing i think that that huge thing when you kind of go you don't necessarily need to be a different person you just need to be with the people who love you you know you just need to start to like i think that's kind of izzy's journey too like you don't need to be you just need to start to embrace who and what you are and find your love in there i found it i found it completely symbiotic with nesting i loved i love that journey like Izzy's journey mirrors Anna's journey a lot, like really get to know yourself, stop going for the shiny object. You know, there's love right in front of you, right there. And you just keep jumping around like popcorn. It's and- so true. There are such moments where I watch it and go, oh my God, that's Anna. Like yeah. the Izzy, Anna. And the outfit, it's killing me right now, but you really do wear the same clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. But yeah. Yeah, I interrupted you. Oh no, no, it's exactly it. I mean, it's just, and it's, it's um, the the minefield of dating in your thirties. Like we've all been there. It's universal, and or maybe we have some friends who met good people in their twenties, and they are blessed amongst us. But we don't really know that many. <laughs> but it's that minefield of dating in your thirties, and and um, and having to find yourself, and all the pressures of a big city, and for Rosa and Anna, love is right there. Like they're, they're driven by love. It's right there. But Anna keeps jumping away from it and not really recognizing very much like Izzy. Even their stated goals, which are to have families, like to be a family, to have children at the same time, to be pregnant, to have kids at the same time. Those are decisions born out of love, right? Like their their specific need to have, to have love, to have, to create more love in the world and, 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 to have children that will be your children. Um, and it's immediately relatable and simultaneously such a weird, impossible challenge to set for yourselves. Because what if you don't get pregnant at the same time? You can't, you cannot, people can't specifically plan all those things. And it's, it instantly tells us everything about who they are, which is that they, <laughs> they fully support one another and this thing that is not going to be as easy as either of them needs it to be. Honestly, it was one of the best moments when we were, um, Alana uh, was interviewing the DP, Ashley Iriskill, who's incredible. We loved her. But during the interview, Ashley first was saying, like, 
she just doesn't usually like comedy, but this made her really laugh, which I think was a compliment that we were a bit, Alana's like, what do you mean she doesn't like comedy? What's happening? She she loves comedy, it turns out. But the first thing, she just started laughing so hard. We didn't know what she was laughing at. She goes, and imagine babies like these characters <laughs> I mean, babies. we really got a taste of how Rosa and Anna were perceived and like exactly you said what is this plan at the same time like who how's this gonna work it but really there is such love there is such like they don't know they don't know what it's like no how hard it is yeah it'll it, work itself out it really yeah. When our producer Tara was was um, helping, like she was editing or, or reading over our drafts, and she said, "You know, can we just emphasize that they both want to get pregnant at the same time?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's just the weirdest want. thing. That is what they want. <laughs> How ill thought out, but that's the best part. I mean, it's comedy. Like therein lies the comedy. We're really not thinking this through, but we're we're le- we're led entirely entirely by our ovaries." logic yeah there's a version of this that is a a gritty tragic mumblecore movie about people who cannot get what they want because they aren't equipped to do it but you found a better way (laughs) you found a more like a sweeter sillier more humane route to the story (laughs) silly is like the the operative word yeah (laughs) and playful and you know it's a show ultimately it's about love love and friendship and family and it's it can feel so heavy and also it can be just fun how how do we do it how do we find and make love and create life i think we wanted to add some levity because these years can be really really challenging and you can feel really lost and alone and i think there's a ton of loneliness i think there's you know now through the pandemic and we're just reading study after study about how lonely people are and what, what makes a family. And like I, I, our culture is so individualistic. You were speaking about it earlier, Rosa, when you were talking about the sort of ego-driven Instagram culture that we're in, it's really about the outer and about individuality. But what we're trying to explore in the story is an alternative to that. You know, your family could look different and it could bring you joy, but it might not be you thought um, you had set out to do, and, and therein lies the total parallel to crossing Delancey. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the last question on the podcast is always the same. Is, it, is there something of the film that you chose that you've borrowed or homaged or referenced or like straight out lifted for your own work? I mean, is there something in Nesting or somewhere else that you've you've really pressed the, the crossing Delancey button? Is there a Roche's track that I missed in the show? Uh there it no um i don't know what do you think anna well rosa you know what i was listening to the music and norm you bring up the music as sort of like this kind of counterbeat or something that doesn't quite fit we have i i felt like i loved the music in the sense that it reminded me a little bit of our musician little scream laurel sprengelmeyer has created a, um original music for the show and we've also have some of her amazing tracks in the show and there is a sense of that female vocalist, like da, da, da. like there's a little bit of scoring with vocal that is upbeat and and charming that I, I was quite attracted to. And that I think we have some of that in nesting. I found there was a, there's a real similarity. I don't know. We didn't, this was not conscious. This was not a conscious choice. 
What do you think about the music, Rosa, and how there's any parallels? I, I do. I, I mean, I found it like it's very poppy in the same way that the music we have is very poppy and kind of, yeah, not sure exactly. And, I, and I'm and i not sure what we took. I don't think we took anything directly from Crossing Delancey, but I'm now in retrospect going to say we took the pickle man because I feel like the spirit of that kind of old timey love lives somewhere in this story. Kind of the spirit of community, I think, back to going back to your community. Yeah. And we did have an abuela in our story, like in one of the drafts earlier on, a sense of a grandma, a sense of another generation that was part of our story. And and hopefully in season two, she'll make a reappearance. It was my abuela, but then my abuela died. So now it feels weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But the sense of generation, you know, that it takes to make a family and that what's so beautiful in Crossing Delancey is that she doesn't have to choose between her Bubby and Sam. She's going to, you know, they're going to take care of each other. There's going to be this beautiful growth there that I think in, in nesting, we wanted to explore that, that family comes in lots of different guises and you need, you need every single aspect to create a holistic, loving family picture. My thanks to Rosa Laborde and Anna Hardwick, whose new show Nesting premieres this Friday, December 22nd on Crave. Thanks also to Sarah Sparks. She knows what she did. You can follow Rosa and Anna on Instagram at Rosa Laborde and Lady Hardwick, respectively, and you can find Crossing Delancey on DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available to rent and buy on various VOD services across North America. You can find me on Blue Sky at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can, and enjoy the holidays. I'll see you next week.